ஜீவ அருணாச்சல ஜீவ அருணாச்சல கூர்வாக்கண்ணியர் கொடுமையில் படாதருள் கூர்மை சேர்ந்தரு அருணாச்சல அருணாச்சல ஜீவ அருணாச்சல ஜீவ அருணாச்சல ஜீவ அருணாச்சல அருணாச்சல ஜீவ அருணாச்சல ஜீவ அருணாச்சல ஜீவ Namaskaram. That was Sadhu Om singing verse 20 of Aksharam Munlai, which is the verse I'm going to talk about today. What Bhagavan says in this verse is, Kuval Kanniya Kodumayal Padadu Arul Kundene Chendarul Arunachala. The simple and straightforward meaning of this is, Kuval Kanniya Padadu means, um, not uh, becoming ensnared in the cruelty of those with sharp sword eyes. Uh, not becoming ensnared in this context is used in the sense of so that I should not become ensnared. Arul Kondu, being uh, uh, intensely compassionate, Ene Sendarul, be gracious uniting me. Um, what that implies is, so as not to allow me to become ensnared in the cruelty of those with alluring eyes that pierce one's heart like a sharp sword, being intensely or abundantly compassionate, be gracious by uniting me with yourself. That is, this is the basic meaning, the straightforward, um, most obvious meaning of this verse. It, there are various uh, other meanings that this that we can uh, see in this verse, um, but I will discuss those as I go along. I'll first discuss the, this um, this most uh, obvious and straightforward meaning. The first word "core" is an adjective that in this context means sharp or pointed, and "val" is a noun that means sword. So "kurval" means sharp sword. Kan is an, uh, a noun that means eye. Eye means in the sense of the organ of sight. Um, and Kanya is a personal noun formed from it. So it means those who have eyes or those with eyes. So Kuval Kanya uh, means those with sharp sword eyes, which implies those with sh- uh, sharp sword-like eyes or more specifically, those with alluring eyes but pierce one's heart like a sharp sword. Kaniya, those with eyes, does not refer specifically to any gender. So though from a male perspective, Kuval Kaniya, those with sharp sword eyes, suggests women with uh, seductive eyes, from a, me- from a female perspective, it can equally well imply men with seductive eyes. That is, though it is well known that women have the ability to attract and seduce men by looking at them in an alluring manner, it is also a fact that men can attract and seduce women by looking at them in a certain way that indicates interest in them. If a man looks at a woman or a woman looks at a man with seductive intent, and if they uh, do so not out of genuine love, but in order to take advantage of 
the Amapasan or to use them in a particular way without caring for their welfare or feelings, they can cause some great harm and hurt, both emotionally emotionally and and in other ways. There's so many ways they, in which they can hurt them and harm them. For example, a man can seduce a woman for sexual pleasure, but may later abandon her when she becomes pregnant. And either a man or a woman can seduce the other for the sake of their money or some other material or social advantage, and may later abandon them when they have achieved their aim. Exploiting another person in such a way is extremely cruel, and such cruelty is what Bhagavan refers to in the next word, kodume, which means cruelty, tyranny, inhumanity, crookedness, harshness, viciousness, wickedness, or injustice. Kodumayil is a locative or seventh case form of kodume, so it means in the cruelty. And padadu is a negative adverbial participle of the verb padu, which has a wide range of meanings. But in this context, padadu means not being caught or not becoming ensnared. And here it is used in the sense of so as not to become ensnared, uh, thereby implying so that I am not caught or do not become ensnared. Therefore, the first clause, the kuval kaniya kodumayal padadu, is a is an adverbial clause that means not being caught in the cruelty of those with sharp sword eyes, which implies so that I am not caught or do not become ensnared in the cruelty of those with seductive eyes that pierce one's heart like a sharp sword. So that's the adverbial clause. Then the main clause begins with the word arul. Arul is both a noun and a verb. Bhagavan uses it twice in this clause, first as a noun and then as a verb. Um, so the, this first arul is a noun that means divine grace, kindness, compassion, benevolence, or love. And kundu is an adverbial participle that means uh, being abundant, sharp, keen, or intense. So aral kundu means uh, being abundantly gracious or being intensely compassionate. This this uh, verb, uh, uh, well, this is, as I say, kundu is an adverbial participle. The verb of which it's an adverbial participle is the verb kor, which as I said earlier, it, it, that, that is the same word that is used earlier in the verse when he described the short, the, the, the sharp sword. The word as an adjective, core means sharp or keen. As a verb, it means to, uh, to be sharp or keen or to be abundant or to be intense. So it's the same word, but in one case used as an adjective, in one case used as a verb. Um, Enne is a poetic uh, abbreviation of enne, uh, which is the accusative or second case form of the first person singular pronoun. So it means me. Sendu is an adverbial participle that means joining or uniting. So enne sendu means joining me or uniting me, which in this context can imply either or both of two meanings, namely joining me, 
in the sense of joining me as my supremely powerful ally, protecting and supporting me in this battle against the cruel temptation of those who seek to allure me with their seductive eyes. That's one way of taking it, uh, joining me as an ally. The other way of taking it is uniting me in inseparable oneness with yourself, thereby safeguarding me uh, eternally from these and all other kinds of temptation. Then the final um, uh, 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 word of this clause is arul, um, which here is used as a verb. So uh, uh, this arul is a verb that means be gracious or be kind, be compassionate, be benevolent. And being the root or basic form of this verb, it is used here as an imperative. Therefore, arul kundu enesen du arul, which is the main clause of this sentence, means being intensely compassionate, be gracious, uniting or joining me, which implies being intensely or abundantly compassionate, be gracious by uniting me with yourself or by joining me as my ally. Um, the entire verse, Koval Kanya Kodumail Padadu, Arul Kundu Enesendu Arul Arunachala, therefore means Arunachala, so as not to become ensnared in the cruelty of those with sharp sword eyes, being intensely compassionate, be gracious, uniting me, which implies Arunachala so as not to allow me to become ensnared in the cruelty of those with alluring eyes that pierce one's heart like a sharp sword, being intensely or abundantly compassionate, be gracious by uniting me with yourself. This is the simple and straightforward meaning that is clearly implied by this verse, but other interpretations are also possible. Firstly, we can broaden the implication of Korval Kanya, those with sharp sword eyes, by interpreting it to be a metaphorical description of Maya, the mind, which is the power of self-delusion that draws our attention outwards, away from ourself as we actually are, by attracting, tempting, enchanting, deluding, and seducing us with all its deceptive allurements, like uh, cruelly malicious people with alluring eyes that pierce our heart like a sharp sword. When we interpret these uh, words in this metaphorical sense, this verse implies Arunachala, so as not to allow me to become ensnared in the cruelty of Maya, which attracts, tempts, enchants, and deludes the mind, like those with uh, alluring but malicious eyes that pierce one's heart like a sharp sword. Being intensely or abundantly compassionate, be gracious by uniting me with yourself. Whether we interpret the meaning of Koval Kanya, those with sharp sword eyes, literally or figuratively, the reason we are attracted and deceived by the cruel allurements of the world is to be found within ourselves in the form of our Vishaya Vasanas inclinations to seek happiness in vishayas, objects or phenomena, which all things other than ourselves. That is, if we did not have such inclinations, 
which are what rise in us in the form of our likes, dislikes, desires, aversions, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on, there would be nothing outside ourselves that could attract, tempt, or seduce us. Therefore, though on the surface Bhagavan is referring in this verse to the cruelty of worldly allurements, the cruelty he is actually referring to is by implication the cruelty of our own Vishaya Vasanas, under whose sway alone we fall prey to any kind of worldly allurement. Since the problem lies within ourselves, therefore, the solution to it must also be found in ourselves. Why do we come under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas and thereby fall prey to worldly allurements? When we are asleep, we are not under their sway, whereas in waking and dream we are. So what is the fundamental difference between sleep on the one hand and waking and dream on the other hand? In sleep we do not rise as ego, whereas in waking and dream, in waking and dream we have risen as ego. So we come under the sway of Vishaya Vasanas only when we rise and stand as ego. Therefore, the ultimate cause of our falling prey to the cruelty of any kind of worldly allurement, any allurement of Maya, is our rising as ego. So eradication of ego is the only solution that will save us from ever again falling prey to any such cruelty. Therefore, what Bhagavan is ultimately praying for in all the prayer verses of Aksharamlai is eradication of ego because ego alone is the root cause of all problems and sufferings, and hence its eradication is the only permanent solution to all of them. He expresses this prayer in, the, in this verse by singing Arul Kondu ene Sendu Arul Arunachala. Arunachala, being, being intensely compassionate, be gracious by joining or uniting me in inseparable oneness with yourself. That is, Arunachala is Atmaswarupa, the real nature of our self. So we seem to be separated from him only because we have risen as ego. And hence, Ene Sendu, joining me or uniting me, implies restoring me to my real state of inseparable oneness with yourself by eradicating ego. Uh, the other possible interpretations of this verse are ones that were given by Murugana, and the reason he gave these meanings was that he did not feel comfortable with the most obvious meaning given above, because this Akshramlai is sung from the perspective of a young girl, the devotee, praying, uh, praying for imperishable union with her beloved Lord Arunachala. So a prayer made from an exclusively male perspective as he took the obvious meaning to be, would be out of place in it. Therefore, since kanni means a net, which is so-called because each hole in it is like a, a, like a kan, like an eye, um, instead of taking kanniya to mean those with eyes, he took it to mean those with nets. So instead of taking, instead of interpreting koval kanniya to mean those with sharp sword-like eyes, which would naturally suggest women with seductive eyes, he took it to mean those with sharp swords and nets, implying ruthless manipulators 
who, like hunters who catch birds, fish, and other wild animals in nets, and then kill them with sharp swords, beguile innocent people with sweet words and by other such means, thereby ensnaring them in a web of deception, and then cruelly exploit them for their own selfish ends, regardless of the suffering that they thereby inflict upon them. Therefore, if we take kanya to mean those with nets, the implied meaning of this verse, kuval kanya kodumayo padadu, arul kundu arul aranachala, is aranachala, so as not to allow me uh, to become ensnared in the cruelty of those wicked people who deceive, ensnare, and exploit others with cunning words and other strategies, like hunters who deceive and ensnare, ensnare and kill animals with nets and sharp swords, being intensely or abundantly compassionate, be gracious by uniting me with yourself. There are, of course, many different kinds of people in this world who seek to deceive, ensnare, and exploit others with cunning words and strategies, and they are not all equally evil. Some of them are particularly evil, such as certain political leaders and autocrats who have sacrificed the lives of millions of innocent people at the altar of their vile political and often quasi-religious ideologies. Whereas others may even be well-intentioned people who have first deceived themselves and who therefore genuinely believe that all their attempts to ensnare others with various kinds of deceptive words and strategies are just for the good of those they seek to beguile. For those of us who aspire to follow the spiritual path, the kind of deceiver we are most likely to fall prey to are would-be gurus, spiritual guides, or preachers of fabricated religious doctrines. And as Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said, anyone who falls prey to such an inadequately qualified guru is like a large frog caught by a small water snake. The frog cannot escape from the jaws of the snake, and the snake cannot follow the frog, so both have to suffer. Likewise, those who are enthralled by, by a false guru of any kind cannot escape their clutches, and the guru cannot eradicate their ego, so both have to suffer in Maya. The real guru is not a person, but only that which is always shining in our heart as our own reality, namely Arunachala. So it is only by his grace shining clearly in our heart, giving us the clarity of Viveka, discrimination, discernment, or the ability to distinguish what is true from what is false, to see through the deceptions of any false guru, that we can be saved from falling prey to the cruel snares of such deceivers. <clears throat> Except for the fact that this interpretation proposed by Murugana does not refer specifically to people with beguiling eyes, in its overall implication, it is close to the most obvious meaning of this verse, which I discussed earlier, because according to both interpretations, Bhagavan is praying to be saved from falling prey 
to the cruelty of wicked people who seek to charm and deceive others for their own selfish ends, and who in doing so lead the minds of their victims astray by luring them outwards, tempting them with the illusory prospect of finding happiness in things other than their own being, I am. We can therefore combine the implications of these two meanings by saying that the eyes of wicked women or men who seek to seduce us, or the eyes of, for that matter, the eyes of false gurus who seek to deceive us, are like the nets that hunters use to catch their prey. And once we are caught in such a net of deception, it is impossible for us in spite of all the suffering it inflicts upon us, to extract ourselves from it without the abundant grace of Arunachala. Moreover, this is true not only of the cruel deception of sexual allurement, or the allurement of any false spiritual or religious teaching, or of any divisive and unjust political ideology, but all the countless other types of allurement by which Maya draws our attention outwards, away from our own being, I am. Though Murugan made it clear that he was not in favour of interpreting Korval Kaniya to mean those, implying women, with sharp sword-like eyes, because it seemed incongruous in the context of this marriage garland, sung from the perspective of a young girl, in the first appendix of his commentary, he considered an important fact pointed out by another devotee, Dr. Srinivasa Rao, that reconciled this seeming incongruity. So I will now explain this briefly in my own words. That is, in many bhakti traditions, God is considered to be the only male, the only purusha, and all jivas are considered to be female, bhakriti. And it is with this devotional attitude, Baba, that Bhagavan sang Akshramlai. However, though as a jiva we are female from a spiritual perspective, as a body we may nevertheless be male from a physical perspective, because whenever we rise and stand as jiva or ego, we always experience ourselves as I am this body. And whatever body we thereby take ourselves to be, may be either male or, or female. If we experience ourselves as a male body, we will generally be sexually attracted to female bodies. And likewise, if we experience ourselves as a female body, we will generally be attracted to male bodies. Since the allurement that Bhagavan refers to when he sang Kurval Kaniya Kodumayal Padadu, not uh, so that I should not become ensnared in the cruelty of those with sharp sword-like eyes, is sexual attraction. It is physical. So praying to be saved from falling prey to the cruelty and viciousness of such a physical allurement does not clash in any way with the fact that this song was sung uh, from the perspective of a devotee who considers herself to be female, no matter whether the body by whose limitations and nature she is currently bound happens to be female or male. In another part of the same appendix, Murugana also discussed another interpretation for this verse suggested by a close friend of his and renowned Tamil scholar Chengalvaraya Pillai. Uh, that is, 
besides meaning cruelty, tyranny, inhumanity, crookedness, harshness, viciousness, wickedness, or injustice, kodume can also mean slander or any harsh or unkind words. So kuval kanya kodumayo padadu arokundu can also be taken to imply arunachala so as not to allow me to become ensnared in the cruelty of those with eyes but lack compassion and kindness and are instead filled with malice and who, not caring about the anguish I feel due to my separation from you, gossip about me, taunt me and make fun of me, uh, speaking unkind words about me or to me that pierce my aching heart like a sharp sword. Being intensely or abundantly compassionate, be gracious by uniting me with yourself. That is, the devotee is pining for union with her beloved Lord. But other girls who lack kindness and compassion may either spread false rumors about her, such as telling others that her Lord has abandoned her forever and never really cared for her, or uh, they may taunt her, saying these and other such cruel words, which pierce her tender and already anguished heart like sharp swords. So she prays to her Lord, Arunachala, pleading with him to be gracious by uniting her with himself, thereby saving her from falling prey to the cruelty of having to hear such vicious words. <clears throat> However, though uh, this verse does give room for these alternative meanings, and though they are also appropriate interpretations, the simplest and most obvious meaning of it is the one that takes Kurval Kaniya to mean those with sharp sword-like eyes. Nevertheless, ever since Murgana suggested that Kaniya could be taken to mean those with nets instead of those with eyes, there was disagreement among devotees about which of these two meanings is most appropriate. Some argue that those with nets is more appropriate, Firstly, because Bhagavan sang Aksharamlai from the perspective of a girl seeking eternal union with her beloved Lord, Arunachala. And secondly, because he would never show aversion towards or speak disparagingly about women or any other group of people. Whereas others argue that those with eyes is more appropriate because it is the most obvious and straightforward meaning, and because those with nets seem to be a far-fetched and forced interpretation. However, Bhagavan indicated his approval for both these meanings, as illustrated by the following two incidents, which I was told by Sadhuam. One day, a lady devotee was sitting in, his, in Bhagavan's presence, weeping, and seeing her, he kindly asked her why she was weeping. With her head bowed down, she replied, Bhagavan, I no longer want to uh, continue living in this body. So he asked her why she had all of a sudden developed such an aversion, to which she replied, I was thinking previously that though ancient sages have sung disparagingly about women, at least you would not have any such aversion for us. But now I have come to know that even you have shown such aversion. Hearing this, he asked me surprised, what? When have I ever shown aversion towards women? 
in reply to which she sobbed all the more, asking with anguish, did you not sing Koval Kanya, those with sharp sword, eye, uh, sharp sword eyes? To which Bhagavan replied, why do you think these words refer to you? They refer only to wicked women. And then he consoled her further by adding that they're equally applicable to wicked men who tried to seduce good-natured women. So that by replying like that, by saying, um, uh, um, why, why do you think they refer to you? They refer only to wicked women. Bhagavan clearly implies that is one of the appropriate meanings. On another occasion, when uh, some devotees who thought that taking Koval Kanya to mean those with sharp swords and nets, as Murugana did in his commentary on this verse, was an excessively forced interpretation and therefore inappropriate, when they expressed their opinion to Bhagavan and asked him what he thought about it, he replied, the meaning may aptly be taken in that way also, thereby implying that though this may not be the principal meaning of this verse, it is nevertheless a perfectly acceptable interpretation. When asked, Bhagavan would often explain the meaning of texts such as Uladunapadu, Upadesha Undia, and Anma Bide. And if he was asked whether a certain interpretation of any such verse was correct, he would sometimes point out if it was not. But he always declined to explain the meaning of Aksharamlai when asked to do so. For instance, once when he was asked by some devotees from a village to explain its meaning, he replied, it is sufficient if one just recites it. That itself is its meaning, thereby implying that these verses have their own intrinsic power, so they will have a beneficial effect on anyone who recites them or even hears them, whether they understand the meaning of them or not. Since Bhagavan would never explain the meaning of Akshamlai, several devotees asked Murugana to do so. But while he was accordingly writing his Tamil commentary, Brithivarai, uh, he was not sure which of several possible meanings to give for some verses. So he asked Bhagavan which meaning he intended, to which Bhagavan replied, whoever composed it has now gone. If you ask me, I would have to break my head to give some meaning. Uh, so you may as well break your head to decide whatever meaning you consider to be suitable, thereby giving his blessings to Murugana to interpret each verse as he saw fit. By implication, the same freedom of interpretation that he gave to Murugana, he also gave to each of his devotees. Um, just one um, thing I will add here. That is, uh, after I posted this article yesterday, someone wrote to me asking about what Bhagavan said in this context. Whatever, whoever composed it has now gone. What do we to understand from that? Does this mean it wasn't Bhagavan who composed it? No, this isn't the meaning. That is not the meaning way to take. What Bhagavan meant is, I mean, what we have to understand from this is Bhagavan has no sense of doership. So he doesn't identify himself as, I was the one who composed this. That's one implication. Another implication is, when Bhagavan composed this Aksharamlai, it was in a, it, it, it was, 
Bursi just welled up from his heart um, without any conscious thought on his part. So it was um, at one time when Bhagavan was asked, um, when Bhagavan was saying that he never uh, composed any verses or said anything of his own accord, it was only when prompted by others that he did so, someone asked him, but Bhagavan, uh, didn't you compose Aksharamlai and Arunachapatikam and Ashtakam without any uh, external prompting? And Bhagavan said, yes, but just like you people prompt me from outside, Arunachala prompt me from inside to compose these songs. So from Bhagavan's perspective, he didn't feel himself to be the doer. But of course, it is Bhagavan who has composed these verses. That is, it is... Bhagavan is not an individual. Bhagavan is Arunachala himself. Bhagavan is God himself. That out of his supreme grace, these verses welled up from his heart. So though he had no sense of doership, he is he alone is the author of all these. But when, when Murugana asked him the meaning, because Bhagavan wanted to avoid uh, specifying this is the meaning or that is the meaning because he wanted to give us all the freedom to interpret these verses as we as as they appeal to us he declined to ever uh, give the meaning and he uh, also uh, denied any doership for it saying whoever has composed it has gone and if some fellow some time ago composed these verses i am not that fellow because Bhagavan didn't identify him as, I am this person, I am Ramana Maharshi, or anything like that. Bhagavan's experience of himself is just, I am, not I am this or I am that. I am I and I alone. Nan nane, aham aham. Whereas each verse of Uludunapadu and other such Upadeksha texts is intended to have a precise and definite meaning, so any contrary interpretation would be incorrect. The verses of Akshramlai are not intended to have any such fixed meaning, because it is a devotional text. So what the most appropriate meaning is for each verse will depend upon the current state of mind of each devotee. Though one particular meaning may appeal to us when we're in one state of mind, another meaning may appeal to us when we're in another state of mind. Likewise, a meaning that may appeal to one devotee may not appeal to another devotee. This is why Bhagavan was careful to avoid defining the meaning of any of these verses and instead left it to each of us to see for ourselves what meaning or meanings each verse suggests to us whenever we read, recite, or meditate upon it. <clears throat> um, I'll just add one more thing here also. That is, many of the verses of Akshramlai, the meaning is uh, relatively, though the meaning is very deep, but at least the surface meaning is very clear and unambiguous. Um, there are many verses which can give room for a number of different interpretations. And there are some verses, but we can never really be sure quite what the meaning is. For example, Tattuvam Teriya, Tattana Yutrai, Tattuvam Naranachala, exactly what he means by Tattuvam Teriyadu Attanei or Tattanei, it's, it's, 
it's not at all clear what the meaning is. We can read a number of, we can interpret it in a number of different ways. But such verses, but like this verse and that, well, I mean, that verse is probably the most difficult of all to give it, decide what the meaning is. This less so, but there are a number of verses like this, which can be interpreted in a number of different ways. And Bhagavan never wanted to, uh, tie down the meaning, to limit the meaning by telling us, oh, this is the meaning. So he, that's why he scrupulously avoided, whenever anyone asked him to explain the meaning of any verse, of verse of Akram, right, he scrupulously avoided to, um, to explain the meaning. Whereas other works, uh, would, if anyone asked him, he would freely tell them, well, explain the meaning and um, the depth of meaning and everything. Um, so, uh, though taking the meaning of Koval Kaniya, Kodumayal Padadu, to be so as not to be caught or become ensnared in the cruelty of those with seductive eyes but pierce one's heart like a sharp sword may not appeal to all devotees. It is the meaning that appeals to that most appeals to many devotees. So whenever we rise and stand, because whenever we rise and stand as ego and are therefore aware of ourselves as I am this body, it is natural for us to experience sexual desire. And among all our countless vasanas, uh, the vasana that sprouts as such desire is one of the strongest and most deeply rooted. Because it is so intimately and intrinsically tied to the very nature of ego, our dehabimana, identification with an attachment to this body as I, it can only be eradicated by eradication of ego. Even if or when we are protected from this desire by divine grace, so that it does not rise to the surface of our mind, so long as we rise and stand as ego, it is always lying in our heart in seed form, waiting to raise its ugly head whenever it is aroused by any cause, whether internal or external. Since all Vishaya Vasanas are what Bhagavan referred to collectively as kutram or defect in the previous verse, and since this is one of our strongest and most deeply rooted Vasanas, immediately after implying in that verse that it is only by the grace of Guru that all such defects can be eradicated along with their root, namely ego, in this verse it is appropriate that he prayed to, Arunach to Arunachala who shines in the heart as the form or real nature of Guru, to save him from becoming ensnared in the cruelty of this particularly strong Vasana by graciously joining him as an all-powerful ally and uniting him with himself in inseparable oneness, thereby eradicating ego along with all its Vasanas. That is, in the previous verse, he talked about he by implication he talked about vasanas generally. He he's he's honing on on one particular vasana. That is a very this very strong vasana of but rises as uh, sexual desire. Though we can take koval kanya kodume, the cruelty of those with sharp sword eyes to be a metaphor for the cruelty of all the numerous allurements of Maya. It refers most specifically to the cruelty of sexual allurement. The reason we fall prey 
to a cruelty of any type of allurement is our vishayabhasanas, which are our inclinations to seek happiness in anything other than our own being. So in the case of the cruelty of sexual allurement, we are liable to fall prey to it because of the strong vasana of sexual desire. Therefore, kodume or cruelty, therefore the kodume or cruelty that Bhagavan is referring to here is not just the cruelty of people who exploit the sexual desire of others for their own selfish aims, but is more fundamentally the cruel torment of sexual desire itself. Like all other desires, sexual desire torments us cruelty because, as Bhagavan says in the 14th paragraph of Nana, what is called sukha, happiness or satisfaction, is only the surupa or real nature of atma, of one's of self. Sukha and atma surupa are not different. Uh, atma sukha, that means uh, happiness that is oneself alone exists. That alone is real. What is called sukha, happiness, is not found, obtained, or available in even one of the objects of the world. We think that happiness is obtained from them because of our avivaka. Avivaka means lack of judgment, discrimination, or ability to distinguish what is real from what is a mere appearance. When the mind comes out from Atmasvarupa, it experiences dukkha, dissatisfaction or unhappiness. In truth, whenever our thoughts, wishes or hopes are fulfilled, it, the mind, turning back to its proper place, namely the heart, our real nature, which is the source from which it rose, experiences only Atmasukha. This is what Bhagavan says at the beginning of the 14th paragraph of Nana. That is, gratification of any desire, particularly a desire as strong as sexual desire, seems to give us pleasure only because it gives us a temporary relief from the cruel torment of that desire. That, that is, as Bhagavan says in that passage, there is no happiness in any of the objects of the world. So why do the objects of the world seem to give us happiness? They seem to give us happiness only because we have desire for them. So long as we that desire is not gratified, we it will torment us. When that that uh, when that desire is gratified, at least on a temporary basis, we experience relief from a cruel torment of that desire. So that is what we experience as as happiness. As Bhagavan said, we seem to get happiness from the things of the world, but that happiness that we seem to get from the things of the world is happiness that is already within us. When our desire for something is gratified, the cruel torment of that desire subsides, and we experience a, a little of the infinite ocean of happiness that is our own real nature. Uh, a classic example with Bhagavan also referred to, there's a verse in Kurvachikokovai where Bhagavan refers to this example, is the example of a dog who goes to a cremation ground. In the cremation ground, the dog is searching for some juicy succulent bone, but it can't find it. There aren't any such bones in the cremation ground, but finally it finds one bone. So hoping that there's some nice uh, 
something nice and succulent and juicy inside the bone, it started munching away on the bone. Because it was an old dry bone, when, when the dog uh, was chewing on it, it started to splinter. And the splinters uh, caused wounds inside the dog's mouth. So after some time, the dog dropped the bone to look at it, and it saw blood. Its own blood, but he thought the blood is coming from the bone. So he thought to himself, ah, there's nothing like this bone. This bone is the tastiest in the world. So it licked the blood and went on happily chewing the bone, not knowing that it's its own blood that it is, uh, it is getting. Likewise, we think we get happiness from the objects of the world only because of our lack of vivaka, our avivaka. That is, we miss... We, we fail to recognize that the happiness we experience is coming from within us, and we think it's coming from outside, from the object of our desire, which we've, uh, which we've, um, whenever we get any object of our desire. Um, so, as I said, the gratification of any desire, particularly a desire as, as strong as sexual desire, seems to give us pleasure only because it gives us a temporary relief from the cruel torment of that desire. <clears throat> uh, very quickly, however, the desire will return to torment us again. And the more we gratify any desire, the stronger it will become. And hence, the more it will torment us. As Bhagavan said, poor, trying, to, um, trying to free ourselves from desires by gratifying them is like pouring petrol on a fire. <laughs> the more you pour petrol on the fire, the more it will rage, the, the more fiercely it will rage. Likewise, the more we gratify our desires, the more the stronger those desires become. Um, therefore, in many cases, in case of many desires, we can uh, weaken them by refraining from gratifying them. Just like desires grow stronger if we gratify them, if we refrain from gratifying them, they will, as a general rule, grow weaker. Uh, but the nature of sexual desire is such that it creates fantasies in our mind. So even if we refrain from gratifying it physically, it can nevertheless strengthen itself by tempting us to dwell on such fantasies. Because dwelling on such fantasies is a subtle form of gratification. And though it is not at all a satisfactory gratification, it, never, it is nevertheless like pouring petrol on a fire. So it tends to strengthen the desire even more than physical gratification. Um, in Major Chadwick's uh, reminiscences, the Sadhu's reminiscences of Bhagavan, he he mentions one thing. He he mentions there, but Bhagavan had no show, never showed any particular abhorrence to uh, to sex or such matters. And once Chadwick overheard Bhagavan saying to a devotee who was much troubled by such desires, "It is better to." Do it than to think about it. This is the reason. If, in, if, if these thoughts keep on coming to the mind, if we, if we try to avoid gratifying them, still the mind will be dwelling on those thoughts. And those thoughts can, uh, that is, a, it, dwelling on 
such thoughts are fantasies. And dwelling on fantasies is a subtle form of gratification, but it's not a satisfactory gratification. So the more we 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 fantasize about anything, the stronger that the desire for that thing will become. That is particularly true in the case of sexual desire, but it's true in any type of fantasy we have. If we are, for say, say very poor, and we're constantly fantasizing about being rich, the, 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 the very fantasy of being rich, we may not experience what it's like to be rich, but the fantasy of being rich uh, we will, will uh, kindle that desire more and more and more. Um, so it's not only necessary, if, if we want to live the life, a life of brahmacharya, of celibacy, not only do we have to avoid the physical gratification, we also need to avoid the, uh, letting the mind dwell on these things at all, because the mind seeks pleasure even in the, even in the thought of such things. So living a celibate life, living a, a, a life of a, a life of celibacy is not easy. It may be suitable for some people, but it's not suitable for everyone. That's why Bhagavan um, <coughs> Bhagavan never recommended uh, external forms of renunciation. Some people say, for example, um, Arthur Osborne wrote somewhere that Bhagavan was uh, was uh, opposed to people taking sannyasa. That is not quite true. Bhagavan was neither for nor against anyone taking sannyasa. But what Bhagavan said is, just like um, uh, uh, marriage comes according to destiny, sannyasa can also come according to destiny. But just because one is a sannyasi, that is only outward renunciation. That's not the real renunciation. The renunciation that is required is the internal renunciation. So Bhagavan was neither for nor against people taking sannyasa. If it is the destiny, it's going to happen. If it's your destiny to be a sannyasi, you'll be a sannyasi. If it's not your destiny, if it's your destiny to marry and have 10 children and spend all your life working to, to support your, your family, if that's your destiny, that is what's going to happen. And whatever is destined, whatever is allotted to us in our prarabdha, is allotted by Bhagavan for our own spiritual benefit. So if a person is married, that is what is best for that person. If a person is sannyasi, that is what is best for that person. But just because we, we take sannyasa, doesn't mean doesn't necessarily help us in the spiritual path. Just because we are married doesn't obstruct us from following the spiritual path. As Bhagav, what the, what is the, the problem lies in the wrong identification. So as Bhagavan said, the the householder who doesn't think I am a householder. And householder here means a married person, a family person. A married person who doesn't think I am a married person is a better sannyasi than a sannyasi who thinks I am a sannyasi. So it's not the outward role of our life that matters. It is the what matters is whether we identify ourselves with that or not. If we identify ourselves, I am a sannyasi, that is the ego. If we identify ourselves as I am a uh, uh, I am married. I am. I have ten children. That is ego. 
we need to separate that following the spiritual path is going within and thereby separating ourselves from the person we seem to be. Ego is the false identification, I am this person, I am this body, that is ego. Uh, in order to separate ourselves from this person, we need to go deep within, merge back into our source, go back, merge back into our being, that is. Our being is, is neither sannyasi nor grahasta, our being is neither male nor female. So all these problems arise only when we rise as ego and identify ourselves with the body. So for some people, li uh, living a life of celibacy may help them in the spiritual life. Other people, it may be better that they're in, in, a, in, a, um, in, a, in a relationship with someone, in married or whatever, and uh, um, what is the best way that this desire, sexual desire, is, is there's no easy solution to this sexual desire. Gratifying it makes it stronger. Not gratifying it can also sometimes make it stronger if we allow the mind to dwell on it. So ultimately, it's only by grace that we can be protected from this desire. That's why Bhagavan prays in this verse. Uh, being intensely gracious, that is, Aaron actually is always gracious, but being taking special, uh, special, um, uh, having special compassion for me, unite with me and thereby save me from this false identification. I am this body, because so long as I feel I am this body, we are we are always liable to fall prey to this sexual desire and to the external attractions that arouse that desire in us. Um, uh, uh, so, as I was saying, if, if you, if not only, it's not only physical gratification that can uh, strengthen this desire, it is also even the the mental gratification, even fantasizing about these things, can also is also like pouring petrol on a fire. Therefore, though any desire we may harbor will torment us cruelty, cruel, cruelly, there are very few desires that can torment us as cruelly and relentlessly as sexual desire. This is the experience of maybe not everyone, but uh, a Many of us, we 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 feel this um, the, the relentless cruelty of sexual desire. Um, sexual desire is therefore one of the cruelest and most powerful weapons in the armory of Maya, and since it re directly reinforces the very root of Maya, namely ego, the false awareness I am this body. Um, uh, if if the body we take ourselves to be is a male body, we will in most cases be sexually attracted to female bodies. And likewise, if the body we take to be ourselves is a female body, we will in most cases be sexually attracted to male bodies. Sadhuam used to illustrate this with the analogy of a magnet, in which all the particles are aligned in such a way that one end will be its north pole and the other its south pole. Just as opposite poles of a magnet are attracted to each other, bodies of opposite gender are generally attracted to each other. 
just as the only point in a magnet that is completely free of the influence of any magnetic attraction is its very center, the only place in which we can remain completely free of the influence of any sexual attraction is the heart, the very center of ourself. Remaining in the heart means not rising as ego, because as soon as we rise as ego, we grasp either a male or a female body, as I am this body, and thereby we fall prey to the cruel torment of sexual attraction. This verse is therefore a very apt prayer for anyone who has ever experienced the cruel torment of sexual desire, or the cruel torment of any other kind of desire, because since the very nature of ego is to be repeatedly and cruelly tormented by desire in general and sexual desire in particular, eradication of ego is the only means by which we can be freed eternally from even the slightest possibility of ever again falling prey to such cruelty. And ego can be eradicated only when Arunachala graciously unites us in eternal and immutable oneness with himself. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya